just want to make clear, in case there is uh, any confusion or misunderstanding, I'm definitely against sin. Uh, I would like the opportunity to preach again next week and not this be my last Sunday. Well, good morning. It is a, truly a joy and a privilege to be here with you. I'm truly grateful uh, for the opportunity to preach uh, to my church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It truly is a joy for me. Uh, let's pray before we look at God's sacred word. God, you are so good, so kind to us. Lord, your creation testifies of how powerful you are, how majestic you are, how wonderful you are. Keep our eyes on you. Keep eternity on the forefront of our minds. Lord, it's easy to be distracted, especially when we're outside. There's cars going by, dogs barking, other things, of course, may come to our minds. But help us, Lord, to tune in to hear what your word has to say. We praise you. We give you the glory. It's in your son's name. Amen. Last week, we began a series on asking three questions. Where do we come from? What's wrong? And what's the solution? It's the creation, fall, redemption questions. Last Sunday, we answered the first question, and that was the creation question, looking at Genesis 1 and 2. We saw in those two chapters that God is the creator of all things, including us, who we made in his image, who we made to rule, to subdue his creation, to be his vice regents on the earth, to fill it, to populate it, to be fruitful, to multiply. When God completed his creation, everything that he made was good. There was no division, no problems, no struggle, pain, evil, or death. There was no sin. All was good in peace and in harmony with creation and with man. But as we know, things aren't that way now. That's clear. For now, we live in a state of wickedness. Rebellion, corruption. What changed? What happened? What went wrong? This morning, those questions will be answered as we look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, as I stated last week, is the most important chapter in the entire Bible because it gives us the fall of man as well as the fall of creation. It gives us clarity to the state of the world. It explains the problem of humanity, that without it, not much would make sense, biblically or the world around us. Without a Genesis 3 worldview, humanity's condition will be misdiagnosed and their urgent need for a savior will be lost. This chapter provides us with the necessary foundation for us to understand the past, the present, and the future of humanity and the world. The events of this chapter detail the disruption of world's peace, of man's peace. But they also reveal to us how 
peace is recovered and how hope is restored. That it's not gone. This is all revealed to us in Genesis 3. So let's look at Genesis 3. And this morning, we're going to look at, just, look at verses 1 through 7. Just 1 through 7. This section is all about the temptation. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you should not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. In the first verse, we are introduced to the serpent. That word serpent is a general word for snake. This snake, this serpent, is described as crafty, or other translations have it as cunning. Words that mean prudent or shrewd. The Hebrew word behind this term can be used in an approving sense, a positive one but also in a negative sense as well, which really leaves us with an opening mystery to the introduction of this serpent. The serpent is described not only as crafty, but more crafty than any beast of the field which God has made. The serpent here is being distinguished from, distinguished from all the other animals. The likelihood is because it was indeed a talking animal. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean it was this by nature, as we shall see, but some say it possibly could have been this by nature, that animals, including the serpent, had the ability to talk before the fall had happened. That's why some say, if you look at Eve's response, she isn't startled. She isn't caught off guard by the fact that an animal is talking to her. The serpent is also identified as an animal that God had made which also means that among the beasts of the field, this is an animal that Adam had examined, an animal that Adam had named, that he demonstrated authority over. But it's obvious that there is more to this snake. This is not an ordinary animal. There is something behind it. Not just because, again, it's a talking snake, but because of what it says, because the content, the message, the goal, shows that there is something more here. Something not right. Something wrong. Something sinister. But the question comes is who and why? 
Because in Genesis 3, no origin story is given for this who. No background story. No information for this antagonist. No details about who this villain is. So who is it and why? As I said, Genesis 3 does not tell us. But the scriptures later on do. Progressive revelation tells us. Turn with me to Revelation 12, chapter 12, verse 9. For it reads, And that great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Revelation 20, verse 2. And it says, He laid hold of that dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Scripture is clear about the identity of this solicitor, that the one behind this serpent is the devil himself. This is Satan, who has possessed the body of this animal to do what he does, that is to deceive and manipulate. Remember what Jesus said about him, that he is a liar, that he is the father of lies in John 8, 44. Now, before we expand on more of this, because we need to, we need to pause. And we need to recognize what seems to be a problem with the creation account. Because wasn't everything good by the end of Genesis 1? By the end of the creation account, God proclaimed all things as good, not only good, but very good. This includes not only the physical creation, that's clear, but also the spiritual one as well, meaning angels. Indeed, that is true, and Satan was a part of that creation. Satan was an angel made holy and good, dwelt in the presence of God, a high-ranking angel. But sometime between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1, Satan led an angelic rebellion against God and his plans. Two passages of Scripture point to and highlight this rebellion. The first one is Isaiah 14, which is a prophetic warning to the wicked king of Babylon. But what the prophet seems to do here is he goes beyond the condemnation of this king to the evil spirit which inspired him, which was Satan, and highlights his sin, which led to his downfall. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, it says this, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven. Oh, star of the morning, sun of the dawn, You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the amount of assembly. In the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. This is known as the I will passage. Satan believing that he could ascend above God 
usurp the very throne of God and be God. It was the sin of pride, the sin of arrogance that led to his corruption. In fact, Paul talks about this, this very sin of pride in 1 Timothy 3, 6, of why a new convert or a new believer should not be qualified for eldership at that moment because lest they become puffed up, filled with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Another passage, Ezekiel 28, it's another prophetic word against an evil king. This one is the king of Tyre. And like Isaiah 14, the context makes it clear that this judgment reached beyond the earthly king to the source behind him. Ezekiel 28, verse 11 says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Skip down to verse 14. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness, unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you out as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. It's clear that the language in Isaiah 14, the language in Ezekiel 28, could not refer to any mere man. This is referring to Satan. Satan who was created holy by God. Dwelt in his presence. A high-ranking angel beheld his glory. Was a messenger of God. Rebelled against God became corrupted by the very pride in his heart, which led to his fall. Now, in terms of how this happened, or what caused this, an old, a holy angel dwelling in the presence of God, how could suddenly pride swell within his heart? The scriptures don't explain. Except to make clear that the fault lies with Satan, not with God. This was Satan's doing, not God. Satan, ever since his rebellion now, seeks to attack and thwart the plans of God and his people. And that's what he's doing here in Genesis 3. Let's look at his tactics. Look what he says. Verse 1 of Genesis 3. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Notice what Satan does not do here. He does not pose the question to the man. This question is not given to the man, showing that he's going against God's divine design, usurping the role and the authority of the man, going behind his back and posing the question to the woman. Also notice what Satan does not do here. 
He doesn't come right out and say, I'm the devil and I'm here to harm you. I'm here to hurt you. I'm here to take from you. I'm here to destroy you. No. He rather displays himself as a messenger of the truth. An angel of light, as Paul refers to him in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. And he does this by asking a question. In fact, this is the first question in the Bible. No other questions were needed because there was no uncertainty. There was no misunderstanding. But Satan asked a question. And Satan asked a question that appears to be one of innocence, one of well-being. It's like him saying, I'm just looking out for you. I'm demonstrating that I care for you by asking this question. But the truth is, he doesn't care for the woman. And he raises this question to cause doubt in the woman's mind about the goodness of God. He does this by reworking the words of God. Because he doesn't represent accurately what God had stated earlier. Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God made it clear that man could freely partake of all of the the trees. All of them freely partake. But only one, just one, he could not. One exception, but the rest he had full access to partake of these trees that we looked at last week were all beautiful to behold, all pleasant to the eyes. This really was a great invitation by God demonstrating abundant supply. But Satan changes what is a positive invitation, really one of liberality, to a negative prohibition. By making that one exception seem bigger than just one exception. Because he phrases it in a way by saying, you can't eat from all of the trees You can't partake from every single one of them. He makes the command sound much larger than it is. Remember, this is to cast doubt on the character of God. To make God look too restrictive. He's uptight. He's narrow. He's too rules-bound. This is Satan's way of implying that God is a legalist. And he may even be uncaring and unkind. This is the method of Satan. This is how he works. In fact, this is how temptation and sin always work. Sin is always trying to cast doubt on the goodness of God, on his faithfulness, 
Sin always strives to redefine God and tell you what will really make you happy apart from God. It makes sin look brighter and righteousness darker. This is nothing new. Nothing new. Nothing has changed from Genesis 3 and the slide of temptation. The goal is always questioning and doubting God. Believe the lie of sin. You see, the core of sin is always unbelief. A lack of faith in what God has said. That's what it means so much to be a Christian as we walk day by day pursuing Christ. The question comes to us, will you walk by faith today? Will you believe the promise of God, yes or no? That's why Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. Let's look at Eve's response now. Verses two and three. It's clear that Satan's question had a clear effect on her. Because though she does correct the serpent, it's not strong enough. It's not forceful enough. It lacks really a strength of conviction. Because what she should have said was, how dare you? How dare you question the goodness of my God? How dare you challenge his generosity? For all that Eve had seen from the hand of God was good. She had seen nothing else but that which is good. All that God had given to her and Adam was right and pure. So she should have shut Satan down immediately, but she doesn't. But yes, we must acknowledge in her response, she does correct the serpent's implication, but in a way that shows doubt has crept in. Because look at her reply. She adds and she subtracts from God's words. She said, of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Where God said, you may freely eat. Highlighting liberality. She omitted that. She also said, in response, you should not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Where God previously said, don't eat it. He didn't say, don't touch it. God had not restricted them from touching the fruit. She added that. Eve is showing to the serpent that maybe God is too restrictive. Maybe he is too harsh. Her heart is showing clear signs of wavering and giving in to the lie. Verse 4, Satan now shows he has her in the palm of his hands. And he shows more of his, really his true colors here, by openly denying what God has said. For he says, you surely will not die. What a blasphemous statement. He completely slanders the truthfulness of God and says that God is unreliable. He's untrustworthy. This is Satan saying, don't trust him. Don't follow him, but rather trust me. 
follow me. Once again, Eve should have stepped in and shut him down instantly. She had another opportunity to do so and say, that's not true. You're contradicting my God. But she sadly fails. She stays quiet. Her silence here really is a picture of imminent compliance. That she's on the pathway to sin. You need to understand that when the temptation to sin is not shut down immediately in your heart and in your mind, the challenge to become holy and to stay holy becomes all the more difficult. You must fight temptation right away when it comes. So much of staying faithful to God as a Christian is small victories. Instantly fleeing from sin, running to the truth. Putting on the whole armor of God. That's how we stand firm in the truth and against the schemes of the evil one. Satan continues, verse 5. Further blaspheming God. After telling the woman she won't die, that God is a liar, he further lies about the result of partaking from the tree. He says that it will be good for her, beneficial, delighting, advancing for her. For here he adds, your eyes will be opened. It's a metaphor for knowledge, indicating a newfound awareness, not previously had, not previously possessed. He also adds more, saying that she will gain what belongs to God. It's a special insight, knowing good and evil. In one sense, we can say, Satan's words are true, but a half-truth that is. Because if they ate from the tree, they would indeed know evil. That is true. They would know evil. But not as God knows evil. For they would know evil experientially, as doers of evil, as partakers of evil. For God knows what evil is, but not as a doer of it. For only God does what is good, holy, and right. Satan here demonstrates that he is the great deceiver. Because deception is most effective when it incorporates pieces of the truth. Fragments of it. This is what Satan does. This is what sin does. The solicitation to sin, it conceals falsehood by decreasing or taking away any consequences. And then highlighting only the gain, only the pleasure of the sin. This is the same tactics today. Don't miss this. 
how practical this is for me and you today. Because the same lie of what's happening here in Genesis 3 is what happens today when you're tempted. It's just a new garb. It's just a new color. It's just a new mask that's being worn. But that same lie. The consequences of sin is minimalized and the pleasure is maximized. Now, Satan says all of this against the backdrop of God's character. For he says, for God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Clearly implying again that God is just so restrictive. He even implies that God maybe seems to be insecure, filled with a petty jealousy. God is holding you back from being great and exalted, from being all that you could be, your highest potential. Because Satan said, by eating, from partaking from this tree, from this forbidden fruit, you will be like God. Something very interesting here. What's really ironic. Because what caused Satan's fall, pride, as we looked at in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, wanting to be God, that was his downfall. This is the same temptation he presents to Eve. The same entrapment. The same allurement. What caused his fall is what he uses to cause man's fall. This again just shows you what a liar Satan is. Because he knew firsthand that God has no rivals. There is no threat to God. No one can compete with the greatness of God. He knew this clearly. For Isaiah 48.11 says, For I am God, my glory I will not give to another. But Satan does this anyway, because he's a liar, denying the punishment of sin, magnifying the reward, all the meanwhile, blaspheming God. If only this human couple would have remembered that they already were like God. They were made in his image. They were made in his likeness. And were to display this by ruling over God's creation. Taking care of it. Filling it. Being fruitful and multiplying. God had given them a perfect design and platform to carry this out. He had given them already the sufficient, perfect means to fulfill their responsibility, their duty. But sadly, in their minds, God's way lacked the attractiveness of the serpent's seemingly easier way. The serpent's way appeared better than God's way. Because look at Eve's response. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit 
and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. At this moment, all Eve could see was the pleasure of the tree. The pleasure of partaking from the forbidden fruit. God had become a distant memory. Look at her rapid response, the rapid pace of it. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, and then he ate. To Eve, she saw that the tree was good, good for food, appealing to the physical flesh, her bodily appetites. Second, she saw it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the emotional appetite. It was emotionally satisfying. She saw that it desired to make one wise, appealing to the mind, one's pride of knowledge. This really, this threefold description parallels the outline, 1 John 2.16, where it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Showing the nature of temptation is the same today as it was in Genesis 3. Those same tactics are used today. If you notice what the author says here too, he says the woman saw that the tree was good. This term good can mean beautiful or that which is morally right. This was the same word used by God in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, which on all of the days, he begins to walk through and say, this was good. This was good. He pronounced it as good. It was showing God's evaluation of his creation, his approval of his creation. But the fact that Eve is now internally saying something that God had told her not to partake, that it was forbidden, reveals that she is usurping God's role into determining what is good. She is putting herself in the place of God. She knows what she needs better than God does. Eve has now fully embraced the lie fully deceived. So it says, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave in. She surrendered to the temptation. And not only her, but Adam as well. It says she also gave to her husband and he ate. Adam finally appears in this chapter. This is the first time we see Adam come on the scene. Now, there is some debate with regards to the location of his presence. Some would say he was there the entire time. And there is some arguments that would warrant that position. Others would say Adam appeared on the scene at this very moment. This is him coming in. So he wasn't there for the entire dialogue. He wasn't there for the entire exchange, but rather he came in at the end. But either way, what is clear is that Adam is not leading. Adam is not protecting. He's not caring for his wife. 
That's clear. We're also not given the specifics of how Adam was convinced to partake of the fruit. It's not a reach to say that Eve, in all likelihood, shared with him the words of the serpent. She may have also added, look how tasteful the fruit is. Look how pleasurable the fruit is. She may have said, look, nothing happened. Nothing went wrong. Join me. Sinful doers always want others to join them in their pursuit of sin. They never like to remain isolated. They always want to include more as they partake in the pleasure of sin. And there indeed is temporary pleasure with sin. Hebrews 11.25 makes that clear. But it is a passing pleasure. It is a fading pleasure. A very quick one. Now, regardless of the specifics of Adam's location and what made him choose to give in, to partake. He decides to give in. That's what we do know. Instead of leading his wife, he becomes the very follower of his wife. And though Eve is clearly responsible here, Adam is even more so. That's because of his role, his position, and the fact that he was not misled. 1 Timothy 2.4 says he was not, 2.14 I mean, says that he was not deceived. That's why ultimate responsibility is put on him for the fall. Romans 5.12 says, just as through one man sin entered the world. 1 Corinthians 15.22, for an Adam all die. Adam bears the ultimate responsibility as our representative head. He fulfilled to fulfill his duty, his responsibility. And look at the result. Verse 7. This is all about the shame. All about the guilt. It says, in the eyes of both of them were opened. Now, if you read just that first part and were to read no more, you'd say, it seems to have worked. The serpent was right. They have a greater understanding. He wasn't lying. God was the liar. They seem to have a more intensive insight. For their eyes were opened. But then if you continue to read, you'd see it's the exact opposite. For it says they knew they were naked. The realization of what they had done had come over them. The pleasure was gone. The satisfaction had faded away. And now an overwhelming sense of shame consumed them. Guilt now drowned them. For at the end of Genesis 2.25, remember what it said about the harmony and the purity of the man and the woman. It said the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What was innocent delight 
is now corrupted desires, evil thoughts, evil impulses. A seed of rebellion now filled their hearts. And the sad reality is that same seed of rebellion that now filled their hearts now fills ours naturally. A corrupted anti-God mentality. A mentality where we naturally suppress the word and the truthfulness of God. People ask, well, what's wrong with humanity? That's what's wrong with humanity. They are corrupted by sin. It's not merely a biological issue. It's not merely an experiential issue. It's not merely that they're just a victim of somebody else's doing. They are fallen in Adam. They have an inherited pollution and an inherited corruption. That is all of us by nature. Passed down to us from Adam. Sin destroys everything. For it destroyed their innocence. It took away their harmony. What they thought would bring great reward only brought disaster. It brought shame and regret. Sin never brings true joy. It only brings pain. That's why you will never regret resisting sin but you will regret giving in. Adam and Eve, now fully aware of the evil they committed, respond. But they don't respond by saying, God, forgive us. We have sinned against you. They don't cry out and say, Lord, we need your mercy. We need your grace. Please forgive us for the evil and the rebellion that we have done. They don't respond that way. But rather they do what most people do when they sin. They try to hide. They try to hide their nakedness, their sin. They fashion together fig leaves to cover themselves. This, of course, is ineffective, for man is unable to provide a sufficient covering of his guilt. This is such a fascinating picture of what is happening here. For man is unable to cover and remove sin on his own. He can't do it. The coverings of man's works, deeds, and righteousness are not adequate. Man's religious works won't cut it. They won't do it. For God says in Isaiah 64, 6, your righteousness is like filthy rags in my sight. There's nothing you can do to save yourself and remove that corruption and that guilt and shame because of your sin. Only God can do this. Only God can remove all of your shame through his garment of righteousness, through his robe of salvation that comes through Christ and Christ alone. Nowhere else. And this Christ is the one who is tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. This is the second Adam. The one who was tempted just like Eve was in the wilderness with that same threefold pattern. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. But unlike Eve, 
he didn't give in. He remained faithful to God. All the way culminating in the cross where he died as an offering for your sin and mine. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the great news of the gospel that we can have salvation through the Savior, through the substitute. The responsibility of the rebellious sinner is to cry out for salvation. And the responsibility for the redeemed sinner is to celebrate the reality of our salvation. That's our responsibility. That's the good news. And this good news will become even more clear as we work through Genesis 3. But this answers that question that we posed at the beginning. What's wrong with creation? What's wrong with mankind? It's very simple. Sin. That's the problem. Sin is the issue. But where sin comes in and is powerful, what will become clear as we work through Genesis 3, his grace is more powerful. And we will see that. But there's a lot more further questions we have. What happens to this man and woman? What do they do? What's God's response? How does he confront them? Well, to find that out, you need to join us next week as we look at the confrontation. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your great grace. Praise you, Lord, that though we are rebel sinners, unworthy of your mercy, who deserve your eternal wrath. You, through Christ, have delivered us from the wrath to come. Lord, we praise you for it. We exalt your name. Help us to grow the grace, knowledge of God. Help us to increase in the understanding of our Savior, that we may walk worthy of him. It's in your name we pray. Amen.